HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. I'm Brian Kenny, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, they've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Jack Algier, the farm director at the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture. Stone Barn's famous farm is a laboratory for exploring how to grow delicious, healthy food that builds resilient ecosystems and is a hands-on classroom for educating people about food and farming. While it wasn't the best season to explore the farm's bounty when I visited in December, Jack took me on a tour of the greenhouse and answered questions about his approach to farming. In the interview, we talk about why his holistic methods start with healthy living soil, experimenting with new crops, working with Chef Dan Barber, and thinking about animals in a way that starts with their capacity to service ecosystems. We also discuss big picture topics like the term agroecology and how local regional food systems prevent food waste. I hope you enjoy this behind-the-scenes look at how a prominent thought leader in sustainable agriculture approaches food and farming. Yeah, so we are sitting in the greenhouse right now. Um, Can you paint a picture for people? Like, what are you growing in here currently? Well, now that it's December, uh, we're in a greenhouse that's half an acre, so it feels like a big open garden. and it's all soil. So imagine a diversified garden. And what's sort of unique about this particular uh, open range house is that it is all in soil and it's really diversified. So we have a 10 year crop rotation. So, you know, there's about 15 different crops growing in here right now uh, and a lot of different varieties of those crops. Um, the house is only heated to 32 degrees. So we just keep the freeze off 
and that means that everything's in here, everything, every crop that's in this space right now can tolerate a freeze. Uh, we just keep it above freezing so it stays growing. Mm. Uh, so that minimal heat and the fact that there's so much rotation has allowed us to keep this space entirely chemical-free for 16 years now since we built it in 2003. Wow. And it's a, a very productive uh, four-season house that... Um, in the winter, we grow all kinds of different specialty mustards and carrots and turnips and lettuces and spinach. And as we get into the summer months, we go more towards specialty cherry tomatoes and baby peppers and cucumbers and ginger and turmeric and all kinds of more uh, complementary crops to what we have growing outdoors in the summer seasons. Right. And this time of year, um, what else can you really do on the farm other than the greenhouse? Well, we do a lot of winter extensions. So we have other greenhouses that are uh, unheated, cold sliding houses that have garlic and uh, spinach and sweet peas and things like that that are preparing that will be harvested in the middle of winter and very early spring. It gives us a little jump on some crops and allows the sweet peas to start early so that we have flowers by Easter and that sort of thing. Um, and then we also have spinach tunnels in the field. We do about 2,500 bed feet of covered uh, tunnel of covered beds that have uh, Bloomsdale spinach and different types of winter spinaches mm. that we use uh, covers that have been uh, previously taken off the greenhouse. So old greenhouse plastic goes outdoors for the next several years and protects those crops so um, the spinach quality goes way up the flavor and uh, sort of density of the crop goes way up we also grow kale out there all winter uncovered um, we grow parsnips that get harvested from February through the end of March um, and otherwise lots of cover crops out there but most of our work is really in here um, at least in terms of the crop production. And we raise a lot of animals, too, so there's a lot of winter forage and work still happening outside. Got it. And most people, I think, know that um, Stone Barn, or that Blue Hill has a farm, you know, Stone Barns, and that the food that you grow is being used by Dan Barber at Blue Hill. Um, other than the restaurant, um, where does the food end up? Well, Stone Barns Center is a nonprofit organization, right? So Blue Hill is a for-profit entity that uh, basically, for simple sake, is renting from the center. But, of course, the collaboration is uh, deeply creative. And uh, so we sell at fair market value to Blue Hill, mm. and we sell just about half of the product that we produce directly to Blue Hill here and, and in the city. Um, there is a Blue Hill farm also that's Dan's family farm that is a dairy. Right. And they get some dairy product. We don't do any dairy actually here. We do uh, a very multi-species livestock program. Uh, cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, ducks, chickens, turkeys, bees. But we don't do dairy. So Blue Hill Farm generally produces the butter and cream and stuff like that. Mm. So the sale relationship is great because it keeps the for-profit and not-for-profit in this great uh, operative uh, kind of dance because the center is really devoted to experimentation, innovation work, right? So the farm is essentially a laboratory for all these new ideas. Mm -hmm. And the restaurant 
and no better restaurant really to work with this kind of stuff than what Dan has been doing is um, doing a lot of experimentation in the restaurant with all these products. So the the feedback loop that we have is constant and and uh, current, like rapid, mm-hmm. and that really helps uh, because that's the whole story that we're able to share with the public. You know, not just the growing aspects of things, but the final use and the feedback that comes back and how we adapt the cuisine and how it's changing over time. Right. The other half of the product we sell to the members uh, that are part of the nonprofit. So we have uh, many thousands of members that contribute and participate in programmatic activities here on the farm, whether that's kids or um, through training programs, through um, different kind of convening uh, programs. This week we have an entrepreneur intensive that's happening this next whole week for farmers that are engaged in certain businesses and looking to take that next step. Mm -hmm. Um, We do teacher training, we have uh, school curriculum. So there's a lot of that that goes on there. And we have a farmer training program, a young farmer training program, where we bring apprentices on each year. This has happened for uh, well over a decade. Mm. So whether we're training chefs or training farmers or teaching the public through this group, it's, it's a learning environment, right. an experimental environment. Um, and so we provide food for those members that are supporting that. We, we do shares, CSA-type mm. shares. Uh, for We do 150 of those shares, uh, main crop season, and then uh, a little less for the winter. Uh, we have meat available through the store and vegetables available through the store year-round. So uh, that's the other half of our sales is to the general public that participates in this space. And many of the general public that participate in this space um, become members because it's an enduring institution. And people want to keep coming back. It changes all the time. There's all kinds of offerings, whether those are educational or actual product offerings. So mm-hmm. just stay tuned. Right. And the experimentation aspect is really interesting, and I think that's sort of um, what a lot of what you do differently. Can you um, give an example of, for instance, that that feedback loop you were talking about, like where you grew something and you got feedback, and then you changed how you grew it or changed what you were growing? Sure. Well, we made a commitment to each other very early, so we have a lot of sort of funny anecdotal stories from the early days of us uh, just saying, look, Chef, you know, Dan might say, uh, you know, I'll take anything you have. I'll take everything. I want it all. And then so I'll say, yeah, well, good. So I grew a thousand lettuces and I'm at your door with a thousand lettuce heads. And that's our, that's one of our first really funny stories because he just says, oh my God, I didn't, I should have been more clear about how many I could actually use this week. And, you know, the thing about it is that he'll always go for it. He'll try to, he'll put lettuce on everything to make up for that. So What's been the feedback is, and I know very well at this point, basically how much kind of volume they could take in that mm-hmm. way. And they're pretty clear about what they need and how we do that. The bigger thing is about how we're experimenting with new breeding, both in animals and vegetables, that we, and when we find new things, the farm kind of leads this because we're the ones really testing that stuff on the ground. And once that is get, gets handed over and say, you know what, this, this is a really interesting crop. We think you might have something you could do with it. It has its own niche, right? That's really the thing. It's like, how do you find new A players in the vegetable world? Mm-hmm. And, and that comes with the diversity and like really 
getting out of the standard uh, grocery store channels and just this these are there's a great diversity out there there's all kinds of old and there's all kinds of new breeding happening that is uh, really creative diverse delicious and and productive so when we hand that stuff over if it's an old thing that comes from some sort of obscure tradition we do something totally unorthodox with it if it's something new then we create some new tradition from it mm. right so that's that's the best thing is that once that gets handed over the key is that the farmers listen because it might be something really different than we expected them to do with it mm. and Collaborating artists is a good way to look at this because we, we're working on this one side of this and feeling really creative about how we're growing and caring for these things and, and you know, the selection of stuff and how that combination of those things are working together uh, in this big ecological system. Right. So that's, that's how we look at it. You know, of course, we want it to be delicious and we're, we're eating it out of the field and getting our own perspective of this raw ingredient in this system. But then once we hand it over, it enters a kind of a new art form. And so I think there's a lot of reverence for each other's work. Mm-hmm. We're always learning from each other. And it's, it's a regular dialogue. Every week we're together. The chefs work with us on the farm. The farmers are engaged in the regular meetings in the, chef, in the kitchen with the chefs. And we're storytelling all the time. And those stories get translated across the plate actually get translated into the dishes themselves. And that way, the experience in the dining room is a story of what's happening in the, the sort of progress of the farm over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that allows us to do is both, both organizations are allowed to take different risks, more than uh, what the standard risk would be acceptable for a small farm or an independent restaurant. Mm-hmm. Right. The fact that we can take these risks, and often with great success, even when we, um, even when the outcome is not what we expected, there's always some great learning experience that we can take from that. And you can take risk. And we have a, a great privilege to be able to take risk, partially because we've all committed—not just the restaurant, and the farm, but all of the members and everyone that that is engaged with the organization—knows that in order for change to happen. We have to try new things, and we have to be open to the idea of this is not something that I'm used to. Right. So let's celebrate that. Let's you know celebrate the capacity to keep learning more about how we eat and what kind of things can happen on the landscape because of that. Right. And part of that process is um, experimenting in a way that allows you to figure out what's the most sustainable way to grow food. Right. The most sustainable way to That's right. feed ourselves. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of, there's so many terms now for the way that people farm, you know, starting with organic and now regenerative. And um, at this conference, we're talking a lot about agroecology. Um, mm-hmm. Can you, do, do you call the way that you farm, do you have a word for it, mm-hmm. <laughs> first of all? And like, how do you describe the model? Well, it's a holistic model. It's really what it is. And I like the term agroecology, although I don't usually say I'm an agroecological grower. It's a little mm. hard to go off the tongue. <laughs> but um, what I like about that term is that it is an inclusive term in terms of just 
society, ecology, and agriculture are all one thing. They always have been, regardless of what kind of story we've told ourselves that those things should be dissected. And that's what we've gotten ourselves into. Uh, but it doesn't need to be the story we keep going. So I like that people are really focusing on that term. It's an international term. It's something that you know the UN understands. It's something that Euro understands. That, you know, it's just it's something that South America understands deeply. So I feel like why don't we aim for the highest term? I, of course, I'm an organic grower, but I know that that term has been twisted upside down, and I believe in its roots, but I'm, I'm not a certified organic grower. Um, I have a direct market relation to everybody I sell to, and the label doesn't mean the same thing it does to someone who has to sell a product line in a grocery store. Right. So I'm a, a big advocate of most of what it offers, and um, I don't need it to justify the kind of stewardship that we practice. Um, it is an open facility. The farm is a, a space that is accessible to all, all the time. Um, we don't spray any chemicals. We have kids in the fields and in the greenhouses and in our space all the time. So having this really integrated social experiment happening here while we are caring for the land and growing food forces us to really stick to that ethic that we, we've claimed. Mm -hmm. So it self-regulates. That's what I think. So the bigger thing is that there are some terms that we put forward. For, for one, that um, the principles of what we do, uh, you know, starting first, that we're, we believe that the soil is the center of what we're working on. That, that we wanna, if we want to make this place better than we left it, the first thing to do is care for the soil and improve that system, make right. it better for us. And it does lots of great things that many of your listeners really deeply understand. When the soil is healthy, Lots of positive things happen. Uh, reduction of disease and pest controls, things like that. Better crops, uh, better sequestration, better water holding, all of those wonderful things. Nutrient density in the food itself. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Avail I mean, the, the fact that what it means to have healthy soil is it means to have living soil. And, and it's the biome that is the intelligence of what we're working with. And, and in a way, it's our asset. It's all of our uh, equity. That that's our that's our equity to sell that off as some enterprise is short-sighted. So, you know, anticipating change and what we have ahead of us, protecting our soil is our best bet for protecting our food system. Mm -hmm. That said, I think the big thing is that there's sort of three elements that we talk about internally. One is that start with language that that we all are speaking a similar language with each other so it's not doesn't have to be reinterpreted all the time that um, if you're an educator here or you're a chef or you're a farmer it's a little bit of a blurred line that we're all doing this together mm. it's everyone's responsibility and and then it keeps the alienation from happening first thing we work with the state preserve we're working with all this conservation work so ecology's first that's part of our language right that we have lots of data to, you know, and, and partners and monitoring and, and uh, metrics and all that stuff. The sciences are great, just as great as all of the experiential 
anecdotal kind of stories that are told through how we're doing this and how we're playing together. And that's part of the language, right? And then the other aspects of this is that we recognize that health continues to get better with diversity, whether that's biodiversity and all the different things we're growing and, and how they interact with each other and the sort of maturation of that diversity, mm. but also that we have a diversity of people right. and thoughts and ways of being together in a space because that's also what our food system looks like. And then the last one really is more relative to cycling and that we want to make sure that we bring in less things from the outside and we're able to keep what we have in cycle for longer. So whether that's compost systems or uh, closed-loop waste streams or wa use of products, uh, m more steps through the chain, better water quality, all those things relative to that is that we're just being more uh, conservative with what comes on, and we audit our fertility. Mm. Everything that comes onto this place is an addition to the fertility of the space and something we want to keep in the cycle. Right. And whether that's uh, waste-fed pigs uh, or... Um, some very interesting approach to eating kale stems, in the end, it's all kind of the same thing. It's just a creative way of thinking about how to do this and also about thinking more in terms of the model can't be one foot in an industrial place and one foot in a holistic space. It's either one or the other. So designing systems that have that kind of sense of thinking that we're always trying to to generate some cycles in the work that we're doing to the extent that I think it's most understood. I mean, I think it means it with everything, but if you look at animals in particular, the demand for animals usually far exceeds what a farm can actually handle from a nutrient load. And that's part of what we're trying to tell people that we, we're building our enterprises based on the capacity of that animal service in the ecosystem mm. first and then we find its economic relationship to that. Right. And, you know, that doesn't, you know, right away, I think people think, well, that means that the, the meat becomes more expensive or something like that. But that's not necessarily what I mean. Because if you can work within the community and lots of people can be involved in a system, you can actually produce, say, pigs cheaper and with much better ecological service by having a good waste-fed system program and using them in a forest environment with you know, rapid movement and management mm. than you can with feeding them grain. You just need a lot more people to be tuned into what's happening. Mm. That's the value difference. Right. It's, it's a lot more thoughtful. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because otherwise, and I've learned this lesson myself, is that if you get stuck in one, trying to pay for that grain economy for animals like poultry or pigs or things like that, that you're, I have always been in that place where just a few more might actually get us over the tipping point. And that's not how it works when you're thinking ecologically because you can say, look, this is the, this is the area I need and this is, this is the amount of manure this animal produces and this is the way I, this is the kind of disturbance this animal makes over time. And now you have like a good ecological equation for why they're there. Maybe I'll work pigs out of a job someday, but for right now, we have a bunch of forest land that really does need help. And, and they're the first step in our forestry program, the right. pigs, and then we'll bring in goats and we're seeding behind them with forest grasses, and things like that, and trying to improve uh, silver pasturing and 
um, get more of a savanna kind of experience there so that there's better forage for goats and then eventually sheep and cattle. And, and then we have improved land management. Right. That's really interesting. All right, we're going to take a break. I'll be back in a little bit. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late night seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients and above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com. Okay, this is Lisa Held. I'm back at uh, Stone Barns with Jack Algier, farm director. So we're back in the greenhouse. Um, what are we looking at right now? Well, right now we're looking at a bay full of Wawa Gai Choi. <laughs> yeah, well, I, have, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> um, yeah, most people don't actually. It's, uh, and there are several varieties of it here. It's stuff that we've been selecting seed for and saving for a while. So purple and green. They're like, um, it's like an Asian version of a kohlrabi okay. or a Brussels sprout. And there, there are a couple of different options here. So like a, <clears throat> a cabbage or a kohlrabi or a Brussels sprout, they're all the same species, right? Well, in the Asian mustards, they're all the same species too. Mm. And so in this particular case, these are what we're looking at are like, basically look like big mustard greens right now. But when they grow all the way through the winter and get basically just after about the 15th of February when the light starts getting above 11 hours again Mm -hmm. then they start to flower so they grow vegetatively all winter long and get really big and fat and and get held back from flowering and then in the spring they put out these big they start to make these buds and things like that so one of them makes these big sort of mustard sprouts that are just absolutely delicious. They're cool. really tender, mild, and the leaves are like wasabi. So it's like sweet and spicy. And then this, this purple one here yeah. grows and it has this big fat stalk and you actually eat the marrow of that stalk and the leaves. So they're, they're very interesting Szechuan vegetables that um, I got some seed kind of obscurely mm. um, and started growing them and tried to figure out how to grow them, first of all, because I didn't know traditionally how they were grown but once I started realizing that they were a great winter vegetable I just kept growing more and more and then I started selecting varieties from them individuals saving seed and ended up with a purple variety and now this main one that's like a, a Brussels sprout mm. and then we also have a couple of other kinds of uh, Chinese uh, cabbages bao sin and uh, wawasai mm. You said that um, you didn't know how to grow these, and then you figured it out. How do you... Is it just a process of trial and error? Well, yeah. In this case, of course, you know, I know it's a mustard. Right. I know generally <laughs> how to grow plants. So, I, you know, from that respect, I was able to grow it. The big thing is about what was it that I was actually trying to get out of it, like a big vegetable. So I have been growing a lot of winter vegetables for, you know, the past 20 years or more mm-hmm. been growing winter vegetables. And I know that 
if I'm growing things like celtus, like stock lettuce, or even winter broccolis and things, that if I can get them in the ground early enough in the fall, like in, there's a sweet spot kind of in October, when everything goes in, they can, they can get full, pretty mature, without much heat. They just grow and, and just build up energy. And then in the fall, or excuse me, in the spring, they flower and do all the things that they do, and then you can start to harvest the crop. Hmm. So I know that the product that came from this was a flowering crop, and so generally what happens is if, if you plant in the spring, usually the, the flowering pushes too fast and the plant doesn't grow very big before it makes a flower. Right. So knowing that I wanted to get some vegetable out of it, you know, like marrow and body to it, I wanted to get it through the winter. <clears throat> but I really didn't know what it was going to do or how that timing was going to work. So I kept doing successions until I got the right start date. And then in the end, I had a product six months later that I had to figure out if anybody was going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And sure enough, it's an amazing vegetable. It's actually a delicious vegetable. You know, I always tell the team here, you know, it's not, we do a lot of seed selection and things, but we, there's never been a new vegetable in, in, in 100 years. So it's hard to find something really unique and different to grow in systems like this. You know, people are breeding things that are a little more winter tolerant, but they're essentially the same vegetable. And this is not a new vegetable, but it is a very relatively obscure in the U.S. Szechuan-type vegetable. Mm. So pulling from different places to, to put them into a different tradition, yeah. to try something new with them, is actually kind of exciting and, uh, again, just, just uh, diversifies the palate. Yeah. Do you document when you're doing, like, new crops and sort of, like, figuring out exactly how to grow them in the way that... Um, works best and um, produces exactly what you want. Do you document that process? Do you write it down so that... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So everything is written down in notebooks, on yeah. calendars, in Excel. There's photos. There's, there's harvest records. There's planting records. The entire thing. All of our seed charts and everything related to that. So there's actually multiple ways into tracking things back to its history. Wow. Like the first year we tried this and, you know, we had... 10 seeds of this thing and that became now 10 years later a major vegetable for us hmm. you know so what we do is i have this kind of 10 percent rule okay so everything is being challenged all the time i always have a leader some individual variety or something that i know has been selling well and is really kind of the top of its class for that vegetable and and meeting the needs of the customers of the restaurant or however but i'm always trying to beat that variety mm -hmm. like maybe there's something out that can actually imp be improved upon here and that might be me selecting an individual in that group that might i want to save seed from that uh, just bolted a little bit later or just had uh, a different flavor or a different color or maybe i am checking with the breeders that we work with the universities or other seed companies so I do work with about two dozen seed companies internationally, and then I work with you know, a lot of universities and participatory breeders around the country. And the idea there is that I'm a novice breeder. I have a plant science degree. I've been saving seeds for most of my life. Mm -hmm. But I'm not, I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this every day in a professional lab or something like that. So I love the fact that there are public breeders out there working through universities and that there are so many great breeders that work in um, 
seed companies around the world that are really interested in getting feedback from direct, grower, direct market growers. Um, I was a little bit surprised at that at first when I first started to reach out to uh, Cornell or other schools uh, and reach out to some of the more larger international seed companies or even national companies like Johnny's and folks like that. Mm -hmm. and to reach out and see how receptive everyone really is to say, oh yeah, you know what, let me just send you a packet of these things, give it a try, and I would say compare it to this. Right. You know, so we got into that, and now we have, you know, sometimes, and every year we have generally about 75 varieties of, of different crops that are being trialed against what we already have. So we could have 500 crops in play at any time, and it's all being recorded, so that's the other thing. And we do a lot of evaluations, so we evaluate all of our propagation work, uh, and we're keeping track. Different seed companies have different... Uh, criteria they'd like to get back but generally speaking it's it's kind of the same like how does it grow what conditions how uniform was the whole thing so we actually have evaluation sheets that we'll give to kids or to plant breeders or to investment bankers or to me and you we could just right. go out here and do it right now and just say what do you think how uniform does this look and huh. and you know which one is most aesthetic to you and if we taste the leaf you know which one do you actually That's like and it really doesn't yeah. matter that you're a professional in any particular way the reality is we want as, as broad a set as possible mm. because if some little kid comes out here and they're like that's the most amazing thing but then the breeder says you know what this is no good it'll never have a market if that kid said it was really good and then you know breeders know a lot but they don't know everything right and it's like that for all of us we we always have a blind spot yeah absolutely um Let's keep walking and take a look at what we've got down here. So we're, we have these, these yellowing leaves here. This is the end of what was our summer crop. This is all turmeric here. Uh, yeah, I thought and that's what it was. Cool. We're taking it out slowly, but this was all turmeric and ginger in this space, and we rotate it into the winter into spinach. Got it. So this is all so winter spinaches. So this is the beginning of spinach? Just yep, and these will harvest all the way through until March. And then uh, these are all Kailan kales, so Chinese kales and Hakurai turnips. Mm. Um, this is Wawasai, which is kind of like a choy. Okay. Uh, a savoyed leaf choy. Here are some uh, spinach trials from uh, a few different companies. These are actually some Japanese varieties of spinaches that are being compared to uh, an old heirloom. Bloomsdale spinach that was saved by uh, Wild Garden Seed, Frank Morton. Cool. Um, um, so we're going to keep walking over um, to the other side of the greenhouse. Um, in the meantime, I want to ask you, I want to ask you some like big picture questions. So I saw you on a panel actually earlier this year um, at the Food Tank Conference on hmm. food waste. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that came up that I thought was really interesting, um, earlier in this conversation, you started to talk about um, how you minimize waste on the farm in terms of like, Dan, I know, is, is known for cooking with, you know, food, the p mm. parts of vegetables we don't normally eat and things. And I think you mentioned feeding, um, feeding pigs with um, food scraps and things like that. But you, you had a really interesting, you said something really interesting on that panel that stuck with me about um, creating a farm system that where you're growing food for local communities and how 
that's going to minimize waste from the get-go. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Do, do you, so, yeah, I would love for you to just kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Well, I, what I was trying to get across there is that direct markets have a community associated to them. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're growing. It's not, a, it's not an exact number because we always want to have abundance. If we just said, you know what, there's a hundred of us, I'm going to grow a hundred of these things. Right. Then inevitably there'll be error and people will starve. Right. So, right. so it can't be that. <laughs> or whatever. Right. We'll share, we'll get over it in the next thing. So one thing is the, the function of diversity, that we have more than just one thing that we're promising us, like collectively. We're, mm-hmm. we're going to eat this thing together. So I know that's there. It's a calendar. I mean, the, the ro- crop rotation is a, is a, a menu, right? Because we know when things are going to be ready and when what the numbers are. And when we have 150 families that we're going to try to pack uh, a full week's worth of vegetables. And we know that we have generally this many visitors a week. And this is when we're going to stock on our shelves and our freezers. And this is... The restaurant, we know they have, uh, you know, a hundred and some tables a night, and, and that's what we're going to serve. And there's consistency there. Then, of course, we can, having a diversified market also allows us then to say, you know, this whole crop right here, mm-hmm. say, is for Blue Hill. This is uh, Celtus. Celtus. Right, which is a okay. uh, Laotian kind of stock lettuce. It, you can eat the greens like a romaine lettuce but really the best thing about it is that you can eat this marrow central stalk that tastes like asparagus and it's really sweet and kind of nutty it's really beautiful it's really good too, it's beautiful <laughs> yeah and there's there's multiple types of it we save some seed of it ourselves there's purple variety and a green variety uh there's spring varieties and winter varieties mm. um, and we're growing this in the winter now for uh, harvest bits of harvest now but mostly for january february and when you get into winter, winter growing is interesting because you don't have to worry about anything bolting. Things just swell. Mm. You know, so there's, there's a lot of nutrient density that happens in the winter because everything's growing so slowly. It's just absorbing slowly uh. and, and thickening. You know? mm. A lot of what makes plants flower is the, is the stress of, of sun and heat. So when it's cool and relatively dark, uh, as long as there's good airflow, there's great health mm-hmm. and slow, uh, slow cooking kind of, you know? Yeah. Just richer flavors right. surface out of these things. So it's very similar to the, like cooking something at a lower temperature for longer. It's like growing something at a cooler temperature slower is going to make it richer. That's really, yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that before. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why things like spinaches and parsnips and the vegetables that are grown here uh, blow away what could come from California in the same season because we have a temperature mm. that can actually do different things that are is it's slower to grow it's not all about how fast can we get this product out it's, it's how good the product can be mm-hmm. so back to this point about this is all for them well I know exactly how many I have in here the the beds are spaced three across a foot apart mm-hmm. so I know the math is pretty straightforward right so i can say with a great deal of confidence even a year ahead that next year at this time i'm going to give you a hundred of these a week for six weeks Mm -hmm. right and that's how they can handle it and then i'll say after six weeks 
if you still want that, I can grow another rotation of them and we can go another six weeks because uh, I can do a spring variety about that time because mm -hmm. this will get me through the winter months and then I can start at the end of January what will come up as of March because it's a lot faster. So the, the seasons work like an accordion, right? Right. So that's, this is pretty straightforward. Now, I could have some disease issue or something. It's not likely, but it's possible. And in that case, you know, I'll take that loss. And I'll say, you know, you have to get that somewhere else. Or I could say, you know, I have some other things I could give you, some more carrots or something. Right. So generally speaking, there is no waste in that way because I know the number of the product I'm going to have. In a case where I'm growing like a real lot of winter squash or beans or something, I'm, and maybe in a good year I'll have twice as much as I assumed, mm -hmm. then that's abundance. That, that just goes to... that turns to the already diversified market that I have that mm -hmm. I had promised it to here and some to here but now I can do more to here and then also over here yeah because some things I just I restrict from other markets I won't offer to these other restaurants because I know I really don't have enough to spare in that way but if we have a really good year we can say yeah here let's do that or let's process stuff let's let's make something together um, and the restaurant will do that. So that's the other thing is that we can make a value-added product or the restaurant can make an in-house in value-added product. Mm -hmm. So when we're testing or trying new varieties of things, the other part of this is that there has to be an economy that um, gets a little farther away from the standard kind of a la carte program. And I, I think in general, my feeling there is that if we could get rid of a la carte especially vegetable production, but food production in general. And we just recognized what it's worth for farmers to farm efficiently in a space, ecologically speaking. Because what it comes down to here is what I'm paying for, the price of this, all these vegetables are relative to the efficiency I have on this farm and how well I pay my team. Mm -hmm. So I want my team to be paid well. I do my very best to make sure that I don't have too many people and that everybody who's here is doing something meaningful and has a full day of work. Right. Right? So that, that matters. And I want them to have a diverse set of tasks and contribute to the whole. Everybody has a role to play. Um, and essentially, that's 75% of my budget. So knowing that... Labor. Labor. Yeah. Right? So knowing that, in the end, I can come back and say, well... Dan, if you really want this particular variety, this is what the value of this particular square footage on my farm costs. So if you want to grow all the, if you want all this squash and you want to try this variety that might be a little less productive, because I could give you a, like three times the yield on this, mm. but you're not going to like the squash as well. But you really love this other squash. So we know that it only produces, it doesn't produce as much, but it's more nutrient dense or... It's more delicious. There's something about it. It's like, yeah, you know, I'd pay for that. Well, rather than saying, look, why don't we triple the value of this thing, which just doesn't usually fly. Right. We could say, why don't you just pay for what the space is worth? Because then it's like a, an honor system that's based on how well everybody does and how well everybody uses the product in the end. Mm -hmm. Right? Because if we have a poor year, and especially getting in situations where the climate is so effective... Right? And, and the way it's changing and, and having bigger storms and, you know, it's doing a number of things to farms that have not yet been realized in the market. Yeah. For one, it's forcing a lot of farms to create more structural protection. Mm -hmm. Greenhouses are important. 
uh, tunnels are important. If you're getting hailstorms in August or massive rain right. or, you know, whatever the, the sort of anomalies are, that uh, maybe you have to net all of your berries because now you have an, uh, a fruit fly that's affecting mm. everything. And those costs don't, you know, we can't pass those costs on of, of infrastructural improvements and things like that from a year to year. Yeah. Like incrementally, we could push the price up and everybody will go. But generally speaking, if I'm if I put up some new nets over my blueberries, I can't pass on that like $20,000 cost in my blueberries because you'll just buy them somewhere else. Right. Right. So it's kind of a collective thing. So that's sort of saying, well. If buyers were to have more close relationship and direct markets, they, they might say, you know what, I know what the rent of this space is by the square foot, by the thousand square foot. I say, you know, you can rent this space for two weeks and have everything that's out of it. Or actually, you can have the entire squash, all of the yield of the squash in this particular spot. Uh, you know, let's say it's a third of the crop. You, you bought the area. And this is the value of this based on what my labor is. Mm-hmm. Me, by, by me saying that that's one of the ways that I want to sell, first of all, my job is to always is to get the best potential out of the soil and out of the crop. Right. So I'm likely to do a good enough job that you end up with a price that's actually probably lower than market. But if not, the point is you're taking a risk with me if we don't. Right. Right. And in that case, that because you have ownership and this choice, you can change the story on the plate. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening. What Dan's doing is he's saying, well, why are we throwing out the roots on this plant? Like, well, just because if, I, if he goes to the market, he can find that celery root and all the little rootlets are cut off or the top is cut off. Well, you know what? Farmers forever have been eating the celery and the, the bottoms and everything like that. If you grow it on your, in your home, you would eat all the parts. Yeah. But because we have this institutionalized food system, then chefs only get these prime things because that's all that's available to them. Mm-hmm. So what's actually kind of extraordinary about the, the waste stream thing is that all that is is just a diversion from the industrial program. Mm-hmm. And having a farm so close and having this direct market's intimate relationship allows us to choose at any moment and any part available. And we can even select for parts of and. and and select varieties that um, that exhibit better qualities for parts that you wouldn't eat, like the squash stem or right. things like that. And so that we search for varieties that would be better in, for, for those kind of things. I th- yeah, I mean, it's also interesting. I think it's a really valuable conversation because there are these sort of benefits to local food economies that if you're not doing what you're doing, it's hard to see like as a consumer, right? Um, I think people kind of think, oh, local food, it's about not transporting the food far, so reducing emissions, or which, you know, you could talk about, but um, I think there are these kind of the intimate relationships lead to these other benefits that are harder to see, right? Right. Well, the, the highest value of what people are doing farming may not be even that we're producing a lot of food. That's, that is a great thing and an important thing. Part of, part of doing this is to nourish the communities, to mm-hmm. feed people. But the other part of it is that we're stewards of this place and, and of this land and the surrounding areas. The reality is that 
if we have a population of people who are totally dissected from uh, a, an active nature relationship, mm-hmm. then how we eat is actually one of our best ways in to make choice, to mm-hmm. get choice, to, to even have choice, right? It's that because when we can understand what we're eating, we can choose better what we're putting in our bodies. Right. And that doesn't have anything to do with how much money you have or anything like that. That actually has to do with the fact that you just have the capacity for choice. Right. Can you cook this yourself? Because there, there are a lot of different options there. You know, going to a fine dining experience is, a, is another a whole other level of this, but the point of the fine dining experience functioning like we have it here is that it's it's really teaching people to be creative mm-hmm. at, at every level. I mean, we can just... Some of the best dishes um, are those that are unadulterated vegetables. Right. Right. That that look at them again in their, their very pure state. Yeah. And because that's actually often... Some of the best experience, if you can translate that relationship in a restaurant that gets you closer to who is actually producing the food is good. Let's say, you know, as of the census last year, there are 150,000 small farms, like small six-acre type vegetable farms around cities that it's one of the few groups of farms in the census that are actually growing more people. And those farms are getting... Uh, more diverse and functioning. It's actually a really hopeful Mm. sort of demographic. Yeah. And the reason why is because as the food culture grows and farmers and chefs and and markets and infrastructure change, those farmers now have new outlets to put those things. It's it's consumer confidence, right? Right. Well, yeah, yeah, and I mean, that's interesting because I was going to, you know, say on on that idea of choice, um, I I think it, it is... It's hard for people to make a choice to eat this kind of food, though, that, that aren't um, near a place like this or even in a city right. like New York where, or, or, you know, there's just so many. Because there are so few. But let's, right. let's say that number was two million. Right. Right. Which Will the only there, reason, though? I hope so. If it doesn't, you know what, honestly, if it doesn't, it, we're all in some, I think we're all in for some trouble because the reality is, you can't learn enough about the food you're eating off of a package. It's always going to be the case that the great majority of, of food may not come from right where you're eating it from. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the farms are doing something ecologically around where you live and that you have access to those places is the learning experience. That group of farmers is doing something very different than the rest of the group of farmers that are doing other things, other mm-hmm. uh, sort of supply-driven things. It's not to say that these small farms aren't productive. Remember, remember this, that 70% of the planet is fed by five, per- five acres or less farms that are five acres and less, right? right? So knowing that, and even the larger farmers are not really feeding us so much, but, but you know, in agronomic kind of systems. So those aren't farms that we want to really visit necessarily and they're a distance from us but they are uh, you know they're important the the thing is they need to be more diversified they need to be doing more ecological stewardship and still the one 
big lever that makes change for them is economic improvement because they are right on the edge all the time. The population is getting older. There's more consolidation. So in order for this, and we have uh, just ahead of us is the biggest land ownership exchange in the history of this country. We're just on the edge of this as people tap out and don't have heirs to take those lands. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're going to see a big exchange. And if we don't buffer our populations with places that people can have contact with that stuff, then the context to make a choice about, let's use, like, General Mills would be a great example. Yeah. Like, General Mills has taken steps to make positive change in their soil health. They're, you know, working with the Nature Conservancy and the Soil Health uh, Institute and... They transitioning ha- a bunch of land to organic. Yeah, and- because they have people like Annie's and Cascadia Farm mm-hmm. in their network and on their board and, yeah. you know, engaging. And... And they see that there's a future. But they also are like the third largest grain buyer on the planet, right? right? So, like, so when they, even if they make incremental change, it's still important. And the reason why they would make incremental change is not, well, not just because, like, they feel like it's the right thing to do. Of course, everybody in that company as a human being feels like that's the right thing to do. At the end of the day, though, it has to be an economic decision. Mm -hmm. And if the consumers all say, I will or will not buy this product if it is this or not this. Like, whatever that is. That provides the economic incentive. Yeah, because then the companies move forward. And convention is is a moving target. We need to remember Mm -hmm. that. This is why everybody, a lot of people in in the organic movement in the past, and, and to some extent rightly so, are upset with the change that we have in front of us, the sort of watering of the organics. Yeah. But we saw it coming, and we all accepted the fact that it wasn't just a small group's idea anymore, is that it's moving the convention. So, of course, there's going to be... The, I mean, the terminology that's being used within the USDA is we don't want to restrict people from being able to get into this, so mm-hmm. we need to make it a little simpler. Now, if you're a soil organic grower, you might be saying, what? all of this work and and you didn't believe what we were saying for all these decades and now you're going to just push us out or not respect all of this work that we've done. Well, you know, I hear that because a lot of my friends and mentors are from that. Yeah. But I also see that, you know, that's, that's, that's the progress. They created that, they created that big motion and it's up to everybody now as consumers, to um, to call out those companies, to be that honest, to, to bring that kind of honesty forward. And no, it's not just uh, face value terminology that they're using because they can say organic or they can say sustainable or regenerative. You know, those words are fair game. How... how <laughs> it's, it's really hard. I, I think those words are all... Um, really confusing to people and um, our reaction is often to change them and add more of them (laughs) (laughs) Um, to try to help. Um, And I don't know that it necessarily does. Um, I guess um, I I need to let you go. So just before we wrap up, um, what, what would you want to leave someone with um, that maybe can't come to Stone Barns, hasn't seen the way that you farm, what you do here? Um, 
but cares about what they're eating and supporting sustainable agriculture. Um, what's just sort of like the takeaway that you hope that everyone gets from the work that you do here? That we all have a part to play in the food system and that you can follow the thread from everything that you eat. And when you follow that thread, do your best to relinquish yourself of any guilt or shame, first of all, that you can't keep to every moral ethic you have. Right. There's a path, and you can follow that. And when you follow that path, what happens is you can build the aesthetic relationship that you have. Aesthetic isn't just a visual thing. It's an emotional thing. It can be related to how you, what you eat. When you eat that thing, there's an aesthetic of taste that comes through that. It's, it's like how much you know and how much you appreciate and what kind of meaning exists. And that's why following that path is really important. Whether it's looking up a farm online that you're, you're buying from or, or learning about them, you know, best case scenario is you go to visit. I mean, the farmers I know would love a visit from you. Mm -hmm. Just go see them. There's lots of times for that. Uh, all the good farms that I know have great websites, have visitation, they have open days, they have parties, they have all kinds of things, ways to include their communities. So if you can get there, and in most cases they're within a short amount of time, go. And if you can't, go to the farmer's market and find out how you can. Right. You know, or... You know, set up a group and take a bus. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jack. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, sure thing. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate, and share it. And don't forget to support my show and independent food radio by visiting heritageradionetwork.com. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening.